The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the noted playwright, Tom Stoppard. Tom, hi. Hello. Let me just recap for our radio audience your your credits. Currently, show running on Broadway, Rock and Roll, which we'll get into in just a moment. The trilogy, The Coast of Utopia, which ran about a year or so ago, for which you won the Tony Award. Tony nomination for The Invention of Love, another Tony nomination for Arcadia. Tony Awards for The Real Thing, Travesties, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, among your, your Tonys, and also a show called Jumpers, which we'll talk about. Films include Brazil, Empire of the Sun, and Shakespeare in Love, for which you did win the Academy Award. So welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. We'll start with your current Broadway show, Tom. Rock and roll. Uh, like so many of your plays, it's about very many things, but notably uh, communism in the latter half of the 20th century, both in uh, Eastern Europe and in England. So with that topic, how do you come to rock and roll as the, as the tie that binds through that play? Um, well, like most people who, who, who tell me what rock and roll is about, um, and quite rightly, you, you mentioned communism in Czechoslovakia as being the foreground, I suppose. And, of course, it is true, but um, I have begun to think that I should try and redress the balance slightly. It seems to be, uh, it's certainly, that is certainly the background. It, it, the, the, half the play takes place in Czechoslovakia between 1968, which we remember as the Prague Spring, and uh, 1989, the end of 1989, 1990, the Velvet Revolution. Um, in some strange way, and I was actually writing about this quite recently in, an, in another context. Uh, plays, plays have a funny way of deciding what they're really and truly about. And one of the things I've experienced with the rock and roll is that there is more um, of a love story in that play than I was really that much aware of when I got into the play. And the play, I think, I think the play seems to work pretty well on the whole with people. And I've come to the, to the conclusion that it's not because there are thousands and thousands of people out there who are really fascinated by what happened in Czechoslovakia between those two dates, or about theories of communism and democracy and socialism. Um, it probably is a play that has got to work pretty well because um, running through it, glimpsed periodically, is a love story. I mention this because I wanted the play, when I was writing it or thinking about it, I wanted the play to keep going till about 1997. In fact, it stops in 1990. And in my mind, one of the ho-ho important things that I wanted to allude to or to somehow uh, give a thought to was that the post-communist years in Eastern Europe brought with them, predictably I suppose, uh, a heavy irony that along with freedom came capitalism with all its attendant glories and tendency to corrupt aesthetically or commercially. Um, and I found that um, I couldn't do the last seven years because the love story, the lovers got together in 1990, and the play absolutely refused to continue. Couldn't you have made it for the lovers to get together in 1997, then continued it that way? Um, uh, the other problem, which perhaps I should have mentioned, is that I, that's, uh, that's, um, with rare exceptions, all my plays are five minutes too long, <laughs> and I couldn't afford another seven years. I want to ask you, because I've, I've heard it, perhaps gossiped is the way to say it, that even you might still feel that rock and roll's a little too long and that Trevor Nunn kept saying, keep it, keep it. Is that true? Well, one of the, one of the truly admirable things about Trevor is that he, he just puts his faith in his writer. Uh, well, 
Um, I have been thinking about this recently, and I should be actually a little more exact because there are two sides to this. Um, a huge thing with Trevor Nunn, who directed Rock and Roll, is is uh, that we shouldn't make things any less clear for the audience than we are entitled to make them, uh, that we are able to make them, and that the audience are entitled to have as a level of clarity. So uh, very often he would ask me to put in a word or change one word just to just button something clearly for the audience. Um, so it's not that he thinks that the text is in any way sacred, but when it comes to length... His view is, if this is what the man wrote, then that's what we're going to do. Um, it's really rather touching, really. When I left New York, um, uh, I've just, I'm just back now to, to, look it, to look in on the play, but when I left New York after it opened, um, I brought with me a little list of possible trims. And it was just like, you know, a phrase here, a line there, just take beats out of it. And um, when I got back to England, there was Trevor saying, look, just leave well alone, you know. Um, <coughs> nevertheless, um, I felt that the one or two things actually ought to go, irrespective of the issue of, how, of uh, what time the play came down. And uh, then, of course, one discovers the other interesting thing about theatre, which one forgets each time that there's a critical moment where it's no longer yours. It belongs to the actors. And the, even the author um, is simply an, a rather interfering presence if he starts messing about with what the actors have taken possession of. Well, well, the, the play originally opened in London in June of 2006. In transferring it to New York, did you make any trims, any cuts, any changes for the New York version compared to the London version? The there was a second company in London. After a while, a second company came in, and the play immediately lost ten minutes. So I, I was stamping around saying, "There, you see, I told you, <laughs> this was a, this was a seventy-nine minute first act. Why is it taking eighty-three minutes?" And so on. So, when we came to New York, um, I had this idea that. You know, with the new, we've got five English actors f from London. We, we've got six American joining. We've got a rehearsal period, and uh, it's all and it's all going to get tighter. Um, but it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know. I had this thing with the invention of love, the first act. I had it with jumpers, the first act. Uh, I keep writing 83-minute first acts when I intend to write 78-minute first acts. Um, however, uh, the, uh, the, the, the actors did not welcome the idea of Tom turning up and saying, look, let's have a call and rehearse these few cuts because I think these lines are better off out. I left it too late. The next time Rock and Roll is done... And I heard yesterday, by the way, <coughs> that um, uh, it'll probably get done in Philadelphia, at the Wilmer, and at ACT in San Francisco, among other places. So there will be more rock and rolls. And I'm going to offer these trims to the directors concerned. So maybe I will end up um, getting down in, in well inside three hours. Somehow I doubt that too many playwrights say my play is too long and want some of my words cut. That sounds unusual for a playwright to say that. Trim, I'm very pragmatic, work. you know. Uh -huh. so it's actually why I love working in the theater. Um, maybe you're right about other writers. Maybe you're right about other playwrights. I don't know. Um, maybe you are right about other writers. I'm not sure. But I certainly get very edgy. I empathize with an audience, and sometimes, you know, um, the length of a play uh, is a—it's—it's—it's it's, it's merely a, a, a state of mind uh, which has a particular state in relation to how the plot is going and how things are working out. You know, some hours are forty minutes long, and some hours are eighty minutes long. So it's—it's it's the. 
the reality of theatre, the, the aspect of theatre life which appeals to me, does include these um, aspects of the experience that uh, you can lose control of it or try to control of it in strangely oblique ways. You can make a play shorter by changing a, a line in a curious kind of way. Just lose a beat. It's mental time one is always worrying about. On the other hand, you know, I'm a great... Um, I'm very practical about these things. I don't want audiences to worry about the last train or anything like that. Why should they? They've, they've already done us the service of coming to the show. And I suppose it's better for the playwright to say make the cut than to have somebody else, like the director or somebody else say make the cut. It's better that that you come up with that, I would think. I think so. Um, yes. Um, I, I I may sound as though I'm quite kind of free and easy about these things, but I, I wouldn't like anybody else to do the cutting. I really would not. As we talk about this process of your writing, you, you describe it in an almost organic way. You talk about the play at a certain point getting away from you. You talk about the play you started out to write. It is interesting that this play with this story of what happened in Czechoslovakia certainly relates to the fact that you are Czech by birth, um, that you, in fact, were, to the ability, to the degree you were able, were active in lobbying for a change in what was going on politically in Czechoslovakia back in the 1970s. Why this story now, since certainly it's a theme that's been with you for, for years in your own life? Um, whenever I'm thinking I really ought to try to write another play, it's time I wrote another play, um, I, I, I usually think back and think, well, how did I get into the last one? Maybe that will give me a clue as to how to get into the next one. And I find I can never quite remember how I get into plays um, I think that there was never a moment where I thought to myself oh you know it's about time I got into the, the whole Czechoslovakia thing that you know I'm as you say I'm Czech and I know people there and I was there a couple of times when it was interesting to be there and it's time I did this play Nothing nothing like that happened at all. I was interested for years in a play about Sid Barrett. I had also uh, a strange idea that there was a strange kind of play to be written about the poet Sappho, the, the poet from B.C., because her work only survives in fragments. And I, and I wanted to think about writing a play which only survived in fragments because the fun about Sappho's poetry is that that um, people try to make up the gaps you know they try to imagine uh, what the gaps might have contained and um, this has always been a sort of interest of mine I'm now kind of free associating well off the area of your question but as a matter of fact, Arcadia is a play which is very like that idea that, that uh, one set of people are guessing what happened or what was written or who wrote it and so on in another period of history. And that particular play, Arcadia, it works fine because the audience knows the answer. It was very difficult to bring off <laughs> with a play it, uh, reinventing Sappho's poetry because nobody knows the answer and one guess is as good as another, really. Anyway, um, getting back more or less onto the track of the question, um, I was interested by Sappho. I'd read a great deal and thought a great deal about um, this, this sort of brain science, the mystery of consciousness. That sounds like a very deep academic, scientific subject, uh, but, of course, as we know uh, nowadays, one of the most popular streams of nonfiction uh, are the books on physics, brain science, ecology, all kinds of things. And that, that's the level of my interest. I'm not a, in any sense um, uh, you know, a scholar of these 
of these matters. Um, I, I, I love the airport paperback about a, on a serious subject. So there was that. And um, then there was Czechoslovakia, and they, they knitted together. Perhaps they were yoked together by violence, as Sam Johnson wrote of something. It's interesting that in a play which ultimately comes up to the point at which communism began to crumble in Eastern Europe, for the most part, it follows on the heels of your three-part mammoth Coast of Utopia, which deals in part with some of the thinking that led up to the communist revolution. Was there any conscious relationship? Did that prior play lead into this? I think lead into it is perhaps um, uh, that would be too simple for me to say, but but uh, it was you know it was part of the baggage. I'm sure. Uh, I don't. This is not an exercise which I would make myself or recommend to anybody else. But I think that if one looked back at all the plays I've written, they'll probably turn out to be collectively about a, a relatively small number of subjects they, they might come out in different forms but um, there's elements you know jumpers which you'd mentioned is a comedy you might at times a farce but it has preoccupations which aren't very different from certain scenes in, coast, in, in rock and roll for example um, so where I think it all kind of pulls together, if one is looking at me, which I don't, is that I tend to be uh, excited by or inspired by quite abstract subjects, by ideas, to put it in a word, rather than by characters or events and once one says to oneself, yeah, that's probably what you are. You're somebody who gets turned on by ideas and then you start looking for a way to to, uh, to populate a play, find characters, find people who can speak to each other about these things. Uh, if you recognize which is the cart and which is the horse for me, then it makes a certain kind of sense to me to speculate that actually there aren't that many ideas around and the plays in one way or another uh, they just as it were they glance off in different directions and the nice thing about <laughs> talking about ideas is that, that that they can be so abstract that they that they can apply to almost any story, and the real Inspector Hound, you know, a play about identity, wouldn't you agree? Um, so, so um, I think that's, I think that's my story. That said, what do you say to the people who, unfortunately, often say, "Oh, to go to a Stoppard play, you have to study up before you go"? Uh, I think that's a myth. You know, <laughs> um, what I mean is that it's something. It is something said, but um, to my knowledge, only by journalists. Uh, perhaps journalists uh, have a, a, a slightly odd opinion of how receptive theatre-goers are to anything that's coming at them. As a matter of fact, um, it would be insane to write a play which required the audience to do some preparatory reading. What kind of a person would write a play? But, like but in fact, in the playbill, there's an eight-page insert in the playbill, mm -hmm. which basically tells an American audience, the first page is Czechoslovakia in the wings, and takes, tells us some of the history of, of communism in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. There's an article about Marx and consciousness. There's even a list of some 20, 22 songs that are included. This is kind of a primer for the American audience, I guess, to basically be able to understand your show. So, How often do you read a playbill before the show rather than after it? I usually read my playbill after the show. Mm -hmm. However, um, as much information as fits into a playbill, uh, 
is one thing. Having a list of eight books to read is quite another. And by <laughs> the way, may I mention also that the little piece, the, the, those four pages of Playbill, which you have on the desk here, um, they're not part of Playbill. They're a special insert which I wanted to to have in there. Mm-hmm. And a regular Playbill has no information in it whatsoever apart from an interview with an actor who is not in your show but is across town somewhere. I've never ever, perhaps you can, you are the very gentleman who can explain <laughs> this phenomenon to me. Why do American theater programs serve so inadequately the actual play which you're about to see? Why do you have all these pages devoted to something or other which turn up in every single theater on Broadway in a given week? Well, let's leave that largely a rhetorical question because it's an interesting one, but it is the counterpoint to the English system where the audience pays for a program. You've put your finger on it. That is the answer because it's free and that's how it works. And you're quite right. And don't think I'm going into bat for the English theatre program, which in, in my view, with certain honourable exceptions, is dreadfully overpriced for what it contains. Let's move off of dramaturgy and theory <laughs> and and practice to talk a little about Coast of Utopia, because we've spoken about it already. It was very interesting. A few weeks ago, when Jack O'Brien was a guest on this program, we were talking about the American production at Lincoln Center Theater, which Jack directed, and the English production. And Jack commented that while the show was going up in England, you were, in fact, still writing it at that time. Was that really the case, that it was still in the works as the initial production was beginning? Um, Not literally, but it was much more squeezed together. Um, um, I had enough time to write the first play in the trilogy called Voyage and the second play was a bit of a rush not because we were already rehearsing but because there were design meetings and stuff like that and scheduling meetings and the third play was written very quickly so yeah Jack remembers something uh, which is uh, more or less true, but it wasn't quite the case that we were already rehearsing, as I recall. No, I'd written all three plays before we actually had a a day one. But um, uh, I find, I mean, Coast of Utopia was not the first time it happened to me, that that, um, I really enjoy getting ready. I think... I love getting ready to start. I don't know. This is probably a a, a, a common self-deception among among playwrights. But if you're writing a play which requires a certain amount of background reading, uh, a play about historical characters or whatever, um, it requires reading. And I must say, I just love that process. I just love that period of of reading and reading and reading and making notes. And I really had to kind of force myself to stop before I actually ran out of writing time because I had ultimately a deadline and I did run out of writing time in a sense normally um, three months should be fine for a play you know a page a day that's that's fine it should be comfortable Um, a play is not like uh, most novels it's 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 only a hundred pages or less Um, so so in one sense, it's not a huge piece of writing, writing a play. You don't have to put two years aside for it. Except when you do A Coast of Utopia. And then, that's right, and and, and then um, one finds, or I find, that as though it had been ordained, four years go, go by between what I call proper plays. I do a lot of work in between them and all kinds of stuff, translation and some film work I'm busy but um, uh, it's curious I don't seem to be able to get into a state of mind where I'm into a play as soon as I've finished one rarely rarely I've actually known what I want to write about 
while the last one is still warm. But even in that case, uh, to my surprise, it turned out to be four years before it actually came on stage. In in terms of your writing process, you talk about a play being roughly 100 pages long, writing a page a day. When you put that first word down on the page, do you already know where the show is going, where it's coming out, or do you discover it as you go through? In other words, have you plotted it out in your mind right beginning to end, then you start writing? And and then how does it evolve during that whole time? Um, I think of myself as somebody who progressed from being the kind of writer who needs to know everything up front to being the kind of writer who's learned that it's better for the play if you don't know too much up front and uh, the more you can risk the braver you can be about just getting into it with your fingers crossed hoping that things work out in some way but the better for the play that's broadly true um, of my own experience over the last um, perhaps somebody else can tell me how many years it is I think I think it's actually getting on for 50 but anyway mm. um, but it's not as true as I like to think it is because um, I can remember I can remember the second play the second time I was ever writing a play or trying to write a play it's a, a short play called the the real inspector hound it's a play which starts off with a corpse under the sofa and i remember quite clearly that that i didn't know who the body was or why or who'd killed the body and so on um it turned out that it was perfectly obvious who the body was when i was two-thirds of the way through the play but it was like a it was a wonderful lesson, um, which I keep trying to bear in mind. And the lesson is that I think that um, the lesson is, I think, that when a play works out well for you, you really don't feel clever. You feel lucky. There's this strange element of what seems like luck uh, that a play begins to fall into its right shape this is why I think that on the whole you can't do it up front because you don't you don't know what you're working with until you're writing it and as these plays are falling into shape do you feel boy, boy this is really working out or when I got prompts I gotta go back and revisit this I mean when when you go from beginning to end and you finish the play do you then have the temptation to go back and change do you say this isn't the best I can do let me try to change it or does it speak to you and say this is it it's more like the latter until we're in rehearsal uh-huh. um, I don't um, in, in my case it's not a case of writing a writing 100 pages you know and then thinking, oh, well, I could do that better, so write the 100 pages again. That's not how it is with me. The way it is with me is that um, you're you're exploring as you go. So the first page exists in many, many forms, and probably the first third of the play has many drafts, page by page. And the further you go the fewer choices you have to make because the play is telling you what it's doing and the nice elegant way of putting it is that there's uh, there's 50 versions of page one and only one possible version of the last page and then when the show is produced it's on a stage how do you then look at that you say gee that's the way it came out that's the way it speaks in other words you you hear it in your mind like a composer writing a song and then when you actually see it performed and hear it performed, does it, to you, resonate as, this is what I intended, or what was I thinking when I wrote that, or a little bit of each? Uh, it's mostly, well, you said when you see it on stage, but of course there's the weeks in a rehearsal room where you begin to get it. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, one of the you know high days and holidays of a playwright's life is the first read-through not all directors begin rehearsal with a read-through, but very often they do. And I'm not somebody who shares my p- 
play with people while I'm writing it or even when it's finished. I'm still fairly uh, a bit anal about it, I think, you know, a bit, bit shy of it and so on. Um, so that morning when you all gather, you know, you've you've helped to choose the company and they all come together and you sit down around this big table and that, that is the first time I get the play. It's a tremendously exciting day for me. I'm suffused with a kind of suppressed glee and terror and horror, maybe. Um, and that's the day. Um, and then rehearsals, I just love. Uh, yeah, I just love the intricacy of them. I love things being taken apart and being put together. And I'm always, um, I'm you know, I'm not a director. Uh, I've rarely, rarely presumed to direct anything. But um, I'm pretty good at reposting, responding to what's put up in front of me. I have no, for example, I have no real visual sense. I, mean, I wouldn't know how to design a play, but I can respond to a design. And in a rehearsal, um, you can, you know, this isn't a question of of modesty or immodesty. It's simply a plain fact that you know more about this play than anybody in the room. Um, because, as I've said in the past, when you are writing the play and into a presentable form, uh, you, you have the illusion that everything about it is clear. And it's only in rehearsal that you discover how much of it is ambiguous. Well, there are so many stories in the case of musicals of songs being dropped, songs being added out of town or during the mm -hmm. rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. How about in a stoppered play? Mm -hmm. How much change happens during the creation of the play? It, it isn't a musical where you can mm -hmm. drop a song, but obviously you can I make understand. changes. I yeah. understand yeah. exactly. Um, the Coast of Utopia uh, begins with a play called Voyage. The first act is entirely in the country, and the second act is in Moscow. And I mentioned that I was quite pragmatic about theatre and, and that it was one of the things I enjoyed about it. And I, I actually said to myself, I'm not going to make life difficult for the designer and the crew. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, you know, I'll, I'll do all the country stuff in Act One and we don't keep having to s change the set all the time. I'll do all the town stuff in Act Two. Um, and that was it. I f wrote the play and and showed it to Trevor, and that was that. And 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 almost from the first day, he said, this play isn't finished. You you need to come back to the country at the end of Act Two. And I said, no, I'm not, not, not what I'm doing. You know, I'm doing country town. And he insisted, and, and I wrote the scene. I mean, I don't want to make this a long speech, but in the end, the play does include a scene at the end, which I hadn't written and which Trevor said was missing. And it took me several goes to find out what to write and how to write it, but I did write it. It's only, it's only a page. But, um, yes, he was right. You know, it, it somehow locks the narrative together. So the answer to your question is yes, and I might have said that and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back and talk a bit about how you came to theater. It's interesting, you know, in reading in preparation for this, that you did not see a lot of theater as a child or in your early teens, and that you really began your interest in theater when you were living in Bristol. What what suddenly drew you to, to theater? Exposure to it. Um, not simply as a member of the audience, but um, as you know, as a journalist, and I was writing about the theatre a little bit, and I was in Bristol, which had one of the most beautiful and I believe the oldest working theatre in Britain. The Bristol Old Vic is the name it it was under, going under, and um, I um, knew actors and. Apart from that, though not disconnectedly, this all was going on at a time when there was a huge amount of interest in theatre in British culture. It was 
the second half of the 50s, first half of the 60s, um, a lot of reputations were being made in the theatre for writers, much more so than uh, with young novelists, for example. So I think there was a certain amount of ambition involved in this, that uh, theatre was a place where you could make a mark. It was interesting in what's really a seminal essay about you from The New Yorker. Kenneth Tynan talks about two schools of playwriting at the time, the the angry young men, John Osborne and, and men like that, and then there were the, the cool men, and he, he put you, I think, in the cool category. I'm fascinated that you remember... It's under those two rubrics. It was actually the hairy men and the smooth men. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, contrary to the evidence here, eyes, I was a smooth man. I think Christopher Hampton was a smooth man. I forget who else. And then there were hairy men who and were there to change the world. Triggered off that beyond the fringe uh, routine about my brother is a hairy man. I, believe, I think that was probably. I think it must have. Pre- yes, no. I think <laughs> I think beyond the fringe preceded Steinem. Yes. yes, you're right. Um, uh, yes, um, that, that's right. I mean, uh, it's. I don't envy somebody who uh, feels that he has to categorize because these categories can betray you if you start making them, putting people in different boxes. But all of these playwrights were emerging in this period, as you as you they, said. That's true. That's yeah. That that's true. It it was. I feel. I feel I've had quite. I feel I've had a fortunate kind of life in more than one way. But one of the ways is that um, I grew up as a playwright in a period where there was a lot of luck on our side. You know, there were a lot of people interested in what we were doing. Um, Theatre seem to occupy a more in, a more important place in the English culture uh, than it had done previously. And do you think that's been lost? The way you're saying it is, it hadn't been, then it was? It hasn't been lost, lost but you can't sustain something like that over such a long period. Um, you know, you can't keep the in- intensity of it. Um, but reputations could be made overnight for a short period back then, and were. I mean, it didn't. T- you know, you mentioned Kenneth Tynan. I mean, I mean, there were a handful of people writing seriously about theatre, a double handful of people writing it, and a huge number of people who, for some reason, were interested in the spectacle, in in the scene. So yes. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the first generation of those playwrights. I, you know, I, I think that that was starting really in, in the mid fifties. I, I I wrote my first play in nineteen sixty, um, and my first professionally produced play in England was in nineteen sixty seven. So it took me seven years to become an overnight hit. You know. <laughs> that play in 1967 was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that you're referring to? Yes. How did that first production come to be? How did you then become an overnight sensation after seven years? I wrote this play. Um, actually, I wrote it in, in sort of 1964 or 5. And it, I sent it. I guess I must have sent it to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, don't entirely trust me on this narrative, but I think it's pretty much what happened. A young director called Trevor Nunn um, got hold of it and read it. And at that time, the Royal Shakespeare Company had the opportunity to put on a short season of plays in a satellite theater, a small theater. There was some funding for this. And I think Trevor was going to be um, doing this play. He'd come up with from not exactly the sludge pile but you know what I mean um, and then the funding disappeared for some reason and the whole thing didn't happen and the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, kindly sent it to somebody uh, who sent it 
on to a group of Oxford students who were looking for a play to do at the Edinburgh Festival, and they did my play, and um, a critic called Ronald Brighton in The Observer gave it a very good review, which Ken Tynan read that Sunday morning in his... Uh, you know, he was actually the dramaturg at the National Theatre by then. And uh, so it went. But as you say, it's it's luck because the idea that the RSC sent it elsewhere to be considered and then that that critic came and saw it at the Edinburgh Festival, that's it's quite something. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, I mean, I had a novel published, actually, in the same week. And I remember um, at the time I was sort of rather pleased with myself over the novel and and thought the play would just disappear. We had a sort of hilariously incompetent opening in the, in this hall in Edinburgh. And on the Sunday morning, I was back on the train, opened the Observer, uh, saw a little photograph of myself and a caption saying something about, you know, a great debut or something. And, and I thought, oh, oh. <laughs> Isn't that nice? I, I thought... I thought, oh, this must, is this about my novel? No, it wasn't. It was about my play. And then I got back back home to London. And do you remember a thing called a telegram? <laughs> a little envelope with a little message inside. <laughs> and it's a telegram from Kenneth Tynan asking to read this play. Hmm. So that was a nice day. Well, you had worked briefly as a theater critic yourself for a short-lived uh, uh, publication in England. Now you get a wonderful review that basically catapults you to being one of the top playwrights of, of that era and, and, and henceforth, of course. How do you, when you see reviews of your work, how do you react? Does having been a critic yourself help temper sometimes bad reviews or make good ones even better? Well, um, you know, with reviews, um, I'm just conscious of the fact that they have a practical effect, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, for better or worse, people read them, and it makes a difference. And um, so, you know, obviously, one would prefer that something nice was said rather than something nasty. If you're asking whether they are instructive in some way and uh, in some way helpful for the next play, the answer is no. I mean, this is not something said against them. It's just a fact of them. It's not just not the way the writers work. It's not the way their minds work. Um, I don't think anyway. My, I really don't think that writers respond in that way to what is said about their work. I think that I, I, I not only believe this, I have to believe it somehow. It seems to me very important. It seems to be a very important thing to say about being a writer it is that you write the only thing that you can write if you're if, you know if you're the real thing or trying to be the real thing there's only one thing you can write at a certain time and that's what you do the idea that that when you sit down to work you're, you're somehow vaguely conscious of what people are thinking you know you need it or what you lack and so on I mean the the same things have been written about me for the best part of 40 years now you know no heart too clever by half I can't think about redressing such comments it's uh, I don't have the I don't have the wherewithal I, I don't have a kind of choice Oh well, I, I'm going to write a play with lots of heart in it this time. No writer thinks like that, do they? Well, you said before that you really write more about the idea, the concept, than you do about the characters. The characters kind of come from the concept, so yes, that's that's where you start from, and you're, you're known to be a, an avid reader, a voracious reader. Uh, I read yeah. somewhere you have ten books for every one that you've been able to read. You have ten more sitting on the shelf waiting to be read. Uh, the thing which I sorry to interrupt you. I, uh, the the thing which I find sort of endearing is that that um, <clears throat> that that people write about my work. Uh, they have been making uh, the statement 
they, they write this. Okay, here's this is the quote, as it were, the the, the generalized quote. Um, it goes like, and they and you know, and they said he has no heart, but this time he's really warmed up and so forth. Uh, that's been said about me for decades now, you know. <laughs> but, but every time I come back with a play, it's the same thing. Oh, well, he's famous for having no heart, but this time he's really, really quite emotional. And I'm kind of saying, but you wrote that about me 15 years ago. Anyway, it's not that important. It becomes self-perpetuating, unfortunately, yes. by, by the journalist. Can't lose the image. But it's interesting, you know, in, in preparing for this, both John and I, of course, read the, the Kenneth Tynan piece. And now this is a piece that was written some 30 years ago. And not only are we reading it now and referencing it, but a number of the articles that we turned up on you reference it. They it do. These things become, take on a life of their own. So so let's work on debunking a little of that. Um, I'd like to ask you, what, with shows that have obviously played to great success in England in America and frankly around the world and you've had the opportunity to see those shows in a variety of places do you see your shows not by the journalists but by audience as being perceived in different ways do they feel different in no. different cities certainly not um, in America um, no uh, right from the beginning uh, I found that people seem to expect or half expect that there's some kind of difference between uh, the the plays received at home and the plays as received in America. Uh, it's just never been the case. Um, clearly, the, you know, there's odd odd detail which just doesn't carry across little the facts, Atlantic. Little words, exactly. But that's not important. Um, no, it's it's actually rather wonderful to me. It seems to me that. Um, there, there's an audience for my plays. Of you know, there's a certain it's a, there's a certain number of people who like my plays, and it's as though they show up for those, especially in those first weeks of a run. It, it seems to me that these same people show up wherever the play is being done. It's as though there's only these few audiences, <laughs> few hundred people, and they just keep coming each time. They come to London, they come to New York, or they come to somewhere else. But what about the experience of seeing Coast of Utopia has been done now in Russia? Yes. And you've had a chance to see it there. Yes. What was that like? Intensely interesting and moving. Um, it was actually one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because... I mean, I got interested in these people, these Russian 19th century radicals, and I didn't know I was writing three plays, and I thought I was just writing a play. It turned out to be this vast thing which requires, I don't know, 70 costumes <laughs> in each one. Um, and anyway, so in due course, um, well, before I say in due course, while I was writing it, I had this little fantasy that one day it would be done in Russian for a Russian audience and so on. Um, and then in due course, I sent it to a theater in Russia which had had a success with another play, Arcadia. And then at that point, I discovered that I'd written a play about certain people they were sick of hearing about. They were people adopted by the Soviet um, authorities, powers that be, so you got the... You got them at school, you got them shoved down your throat for years at school, and they didn't want to know about them anymore. But then I, then I, so there were, the play was around Russian theatres for a couple of years before it found the right one and the right director, the man who ran this theatre. And uh, for reasons which it would be too long, it would take too long to explain, it actually found its its proper home. And then. Um, I said it was a marvelous experience for me, and it truly was. It was a, a moving experience because then it all turned from being a play about people uh, that we're sick of. And by the way, what makes you think that you as an outsider could actually know anything about these characters? It turned from that into... A huge feeling of interest and gratitude that somebody actually was interested in in Russian history. Somebody from way out there 
uh, had become fascinated by these Russian characters, real people from the 19th century. Um, and then what was most interesting was, and this is a very deep subject which we can only glance at now, but what was most interesting was that that as the time went by, the, I wrote the play in 2000, it was done in 2002, it was in Russia in 2006. And in the meantime, the play seemed to have more and more to say about contemporary Russia. That's what got them. Um, the play just kept... They would... Gosh, I'm interrupting myself because mm -hmm. now remembering what happened back in Moscow those months ago, I'm remembering how wonderful it was um, that you know a character would have something to say, just a sentence, and there'd be a ripple of applause, which was entirely about self-reference, about reference to us in the audience. It wasn't about how clever it was or how witty it was. It was entirely about, <gasps> that's right, that's what's happening now. It was all about that. So it was a intense experience, and there were lovely, wonderful people who I was working with. So do the Russian audiences see it and react to it differently than both the British and the American audiences? Yes. Yeah. Yes, um, they did. Um, uh, it's not just... It's not... Sorry. It is not just that they reacted differently. It was a different thing they were reacting to. You know, in England... In, in London and New York, in, where you know where this this play started and went on, um, much as you try to resist it, uh, in the end, uh, the humour in the plays becomes very very important, um, and rightly so. I mean, one of you know my personal personal uh, maxims, which I've turned into a cliche, is that laughter is the sound of comprehension. So you do want that laugh. It, 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 it tells you that the thing got home there. But, you know, uh, uh, in spite of its serious subject and its length and everything else, um, there was a surprising and you know, enormous amount of laughter throughout these three plays in London and New York. Um, in Russia, it was completely different, um, and uh, I guess partly when it's because when things go into into another language, certain things just get lost, and and humour is always fragile in that respect. Um, but the main thing was that um, you know the situation isn't funny; uh, it's a very serious so it wasn't like a deeply gloomy serious event in Russia but it was a completely different kind of event it was about contemporary life and and uh, I'm going in fact I'm going to go back in a couple of months to see it again and and uh, you know just have a reunion with this wonderful company of actors we've, we've made reference a couple times uh, to the Kenneth Tynan piece which was written roughly 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, there's one sentence that he wrote, and I was kind of leading up to this a few minutes ago. Uh, Tynan is saying this about you. His works have a way of changing their themes as soon as he sits down at his typewriter. Was that true then? Is it true now? And how do you come up with the themes that you've decided to write upon? I hadn't remembered that quotation. <laughs> um, I, in fact, um, I only read the article in proof uh -huh. for corrections, for inaccuracies which at his request so I haven't read it for 30 years um, can you read that sentence again? His works have a way of changing their themes as soon as he sits down at his typewriter themes? themes really um, that's, that's uh, almost uh, incomprehensible statement to me I don't, I don't quite know what it's saying. Um, if it's saying that plays go off in directions you didn't expect, well, uh, you don't need... 
anybody to come from the grave to tell you that. Maybe it talks to what you were saying earlier, how you, how it evolves, you know, how as you go through it, 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 it kind of speaks and kind of evolves from that. Well, yes. I mean... Uh, of course, this was 30 years ago. Yes, but it's something which, insofar as I can detect what he's saying, it's something which becomes truer and truer. Um, yes. I think that... I mean, one of the things which I think used to be said, and I recognize there's some truth in this, is that um, I was much more interested in in both halves of an argument. Um, I liked I liked looking at both halves of an argument, as opposed to somebody who has a position and is mostly interested in in communicating mm -hmm. that half of an argument. A polemical writer, uh, I. I didn't think I had many. Th I didn't think I had many things to sell that I was interested in <laughs> selling, but I liked the. I liked the marketplace. Mm -hmm. It's always unfair to ask a playwright to say what their favorite work is, and I would not do that to you. But I am curious that even with all of the acclaim that you've had for so many of your works. Is there any play of yours that think that you think didn't quite get its due, or that may be due to be rediscovered again? Well, it's a nice offer. Thank you. Um, kind of you to give me the chance. I'm I'm now um, thinking rapidly. Um, a play which I'm very fond of, which which has worked beautifully in the American theaters where it's been. Um, is a play called Indian Ink, which is <clears throat> quite a difficult play in a sense. Oh, no, no, it's not difficult. What I'm trying to say is, it's a it's a fairly expensive play to mount, perhaps. And uh, I know that Kerry Perloff wanted to bring it to New York and was hoping to do so, but that never happened. Um, so that's probably a play which, and it, and it was uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, at uh, the studio there. Um, I think a couple of times so it's a play which is kind of fine but um, well actually I should let me get past the semicolon which would be this insofar as it matters a damn whether a play is shown in New York or not um, Indian Ink is a play which I'd like to have here one day but not necessarily on Broadway and often at the ends of interviews, and we are drawing to a close, there's the question of what are you working on next, and as the way you've talked about your work, I wouldn't ask that. But you wrote in Vanity Fair that you very often get fixated on a piece of music as you start to write a play, and I was surprised to read that Coast of Utopia, you were you were listening to Pink Floyd's Com Comfortably Numb, and with Arcadia, it was You Can't Always Get What You Want. So let me ask you, what are you listening to these days? Well, you know, um, I'm not into a play of my own. I'm actually translating uh, a Chekhov play, Ivanov, for Michael Grandage, who runs the Donmar Theatre in London. Um, and it seems sadly the case that when I'm translating a play, I don't need the music. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm listening to, I, you know, um, in London quite recently, there was a huge, triumphant reunion of Led Zeppelin, and I've been on my travels, and so I, I got, uh, what's that, that big album, Mothership? Uh, so I got that played, it just to remind myself of um, Led Zeppelin, because I hadn't, I hadn't really been playing them for years and years, and they weren't really that big with me. Oh, but I'll tell you, so I'm jumping now, but Robert Plant, uh, he's, as you probably know, he's done an album with Alicia Krauss. Alison Krauss. Alison, beg your pardon, um, of whom I didn't know until this album. Um, Raising Sand, it's called, and I play that a lot in my hotel. But um, you have to make a different difference between um, interrupting your work to play music and working while the music is there. 
which brings us kind of full circle back to rock and roll, which is your current show here in New York, and featuring the music of, among others, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stone, Pink Floyd, and uh, John Lennon. Were you listening to that music while you were writing the show? Yeah, oh, yes. Inspiring you? Yeah. Um, I listened to all those. Um, I'm, you know, uh, I was never a huge Sid Barrett fan. I've got to like his, his songs as a result of writing the, the play. I mean, I've got to like them a lot since, but I never used to listen much. But with most of the others, uh, you know, these are bands that have have given me moments of transcendence. And on that note, rock and roll is playing at the Bernard Jacobs Theater here in New York. And Tom, Tom Stoppard, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. It is a real pleasure to be with you. Tom, thank you so much. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.